Okay, here we are at week six, the very last week of our course. And this week we're going to have a bit of a romp. We're going to start looking at fallacies. Fallacies are bad arguments that look like good arguments and can easily be confused for them. Okay, let's get started. Um, just a recap on last week, as always. Um, if you remember, we looked at what makes a deductive argument sound, uh, and we looked at what makes such an argument valid. Um, so, just a quick reminder for you. Um, would the argument be sound in this situation, where it's valid, but it has false premises? Put your hand up if you think that's sound. So, it's a valid argument, but false premises. Okay. What about if it's an invalid argument with false premises? No. Okay, what if it's an invalid argument with true premises? And a valid argument with true premises? Okay, good. Well done. Yep. It's only sound if it's a valid argument and it has true premises. Uh, it, all its premises must be true and it's valid. Well done. Okay, now here's the tricky one. Okay, the question is, could the argument be valid uh, when it's got false premises and a false conclusion? Yes. Yes. It could be valid. Well done. Could it be invalid? Yes. Well done. Good. Okay, what if it has false premises and a true conclusion? Could it be valid? Put your hand up this time. Could it be valid if it has false premises and a true conclusion? Could it be valid? Okay, those of you without your hands up, is that because you don't know? <laughs> right, okay. Um, what about if it's got true premises and a true conclusion? Could it be valid then? Okay, could it be invalid then? Oh, yes, it could. <laughs> okay, there's only one situation in which it couldn't be valid. Only one situation in which it couldn't be valid, and that's um, it, this one. If it's got true premises and a false conclusion, it couldn't be valid. Otherwise, it could be. It could be either valid or invalid. And the reason for that is because uh, an argument is valid if and only if there's no possible situation in which all the premises are true and its conclusion false. So it's a sufficient condition for an argument being valid that it... Uh, there's no possible situation in which its premises are true and conclusion false, and that's a necessary condition too. And if you remember, I said to you last week, there are two things you've got to remember. One is that it's the possibility, not the actuality, of the combination of true premises and false conclusion that's important. And the other is it's the combination of true premises and false conclusion that's important. Um, okay. I gave you another test, so if that was one test of validity, and the other test I gave you is that an argument is valid if and only if its counterexample set is consistent. And the counterexample set is the set consisting of the premises plus the negation of the conclusion. So if you have, uh, if it's Friday, Marianne's wearing jeans, it is Friday, therefore Marianne's wearing jeans. That's an, argu an argument. If you take the conclusion, Marianne's wearing jeans, and negate it, so you've got, it's not the case that Marianne's wearing jeans, the counterexample set then becomes, if it's Friday, Marianne's wearing jeans, Marianne wear is wearing jeans, um, it's not the case. It's, uh, I've forgotten what the premise and conclusion was. If it's Friday, Marianne's wearing jeans, Marianne's wearing jeans. Marianne's wearing jeans. 
Friday. It is Friday. It's not the case that Marianne's wearing jeans. That's the counterexample set. Now, listen again. Is that consistent? Could all these sentences be true together? If it's Friday, Marianne's wearing jeans. It is Friday. It's not the case that Marianne's wearing jeans. Could those be true together? They couldn't, could they? And that shows that the original argument is valid. It shows there is no possible situation where the premises are true and the conclusion is false because the set consisting of the premises and the negation of the conclusion is inconsistent. In other words, there's no possible situation where they're all true together. That's why that test works. So, okay, and I said to you, there are two tests. You will have understood the concept of validity once you've understood, firstly, the paradoxes of entailment, and secondly, why this works. If you understand why this works, you're getting there. If you understand why the paradoxes of entailment are valid arguments, you will see why um, you've, you'll have understood the concept of validity. Okay, I can see there are still p people worrying about the concept of validity, and with any, if there's time for questions, we'll have a look at the questions that you might have then. Uh, but we must go on today, I'm afraid, so uh, we'll move straight on. This week, we're going to be looking at common fallacies. Uh, and a fallacy is an argument that looks like a good argument, that can easily, easily be mistaken for a good argument, but that isn't a good argument. Uh, and you won't believe how many fallacies there are, fallacies that you can just identify and, and explain why they're fallacies, why they look as if they're good arguments and they're not. But I've um, listed a whole load of uh, fallacies. Actually, I've taken them from a website that I've mentioned on the top. Uh, and there, there are, I think there are four pages or something of fallacies, all in, I apologise for the smallness of the print, but they wouldn't have let me photocopy it if I'd put it any larger. Um, and I'd just like to point out uh, at the top that one fallacy is, now I haven't got my glasses on, so uh, it says something like, please note that the argument from fast talking on page eight, um, it, it, uh, that tells you that if somebody talks fast, um, you haven't got a chance to work out for yourself whether the premises are true and the conclusion is valid. And I'd just like to point out that I've gone through these ideas in these lectures so quickly in some cases that there's no way you'll have had time to stop and think about them as I've been talking. And so um, you could say that the whole of these series of lectures has been a, a giant fallacy of fast talking. Uh, I promise you it's not. And that if you go back and, and consider what I've said, and of course they'll all be on the podcast, so you'll be able to actually go back and listen to what I've said again. Um, you'll be able to listen to all my mistakes as well as the things I've said correctly. I hope we've identified all my mistakes as we've gone through. Um, but, but that'll give you time to actually think about what I've said and work it out for yourself because actually nobody can teach anybody else anything. You can learn from what I say. It, it, there's nothing I can do to make you understand the concept of validity. You've got to put that effort in for yourself. One thing I will promise you, though, if you do put that effort in, you will understand. And if you still don't, after putting in a lot of effort, email me and I'll give you a tutorial all on your own. Um, because it, it really is easy to understand once you've seen it. And it really is just a, a question of looking at it in a slightly different way and, I, and you'll see it. It's, it's one of those 
rather irritating things you'll probably remember from maths from school. Okay, so fallacy of fast talking. But the list of fallacies is down there um, just for your amusement. Okay, um, here's a fallacy, or rather here's a deductively valid argument, and here's a fallacy that looks like it. Okay, here's an example of uh, modus ponens you've come across before. Uh, I think you'll agree, could these be true and this one false? If these two are true, could this be false? No, absolutely not. So if you negated that conclusion and took away the therefore, if you negated that conclusion, the set would be inconsistent, wouldn't it? Um, and that shows you it's a valid argument. Uh, would you like us to do that there? We can look at this, the counterexample set. If it is snowing, the mail will be late. It is snowing. The mail will be late. And we're going to tack on, it's not the case that, which is just that symbol there. Okay, that's what that means. It is not the case that. Um, so we've got the set consisting of, if it's snowing, the mail will be late. It is snowing. It's not the case the mail will be late. Do you agree that's inconsistent? That there's no possible situation in which all those three sentences can be true together? Okay, well, if there's no possible situation in which those three sentences can be true together, um, then the set consisting of the premises plus the... Uh, sorry, there's no possible situation where the premises are true and the conclusion is false, is there? Because that's what the counterexample set is. The, true, the premises, just as they are, and the negation of the conclusion. Okay, that's why that test works. But look at this one. If it's snowing, the mail will be late. The mail will be late, therefore it's snowing. Let's create the counterexample set of that. So tell me what to write, somebody. If it's snowing, the mail will be late. What do I write next? The mail will be late. No, we don't put the therefore in because we're creating the counterexample set now. We're just making a set of sentences. So I'm putting it is snowing. And then what do I do? I put the negation sign in front of that and say it's not the case it's snowing. So we've now got the set consisting of the premises, just as they are, plus we're pretending the conclusion is false. Okay, we're putting a not the case in front of the conclusion, pretending it's false. Now, is the... Could these sentences be true together? Is there a possible situation in which all these sentences are true? Where if it's snowing, the mail will be late. The mail is late, but it's not snowing. Yes, okay, give me a couple. It's a postal strike, yes, <laughs> exactly so. Okay, give me another one if you can think of one. The male van's broken down, exactly. So there are all sorts of situations in which these two premises are true and so is the negation of the conclusion. Therefore, it's obvious there's more than one possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion is false. 
So making a counterexample set enables you to think about situations where the premises are true and the conclusion is false. And that's why it tells you um, whether the argument's valid or not. So this is a deductively valid argument, and this is a fallacy. This is the fallacy of affirming the consequent. So if you like, you take the consequent of the conditional instead of the antecedent, and um, you put that as the second premise, and then derive the antecedent instead of the consequent, and, and it doesn't work, as you can see. Okay, so that's a formal fallacy. Um, we're going to look at fallacies informally. Um, some of the fallacies that we'll look at are actually formal fallacies, but I'll, I'll talk about them informally because it's, it's just as easy for you to understand. Okay, we're going to have a look at three types of fallacy. We're going to look at fallacies of relevance, fallacies of vacuity, and fallacies of clarity. And even then, we're just skimming the surface. Okay, so let's look at fallacies of relevance. Uh, the first one is a non sequitur. And you, you commit a fallacy of uh, non sequitur when you cite in support of a conclusion something that's true but irrelevant. Okay, so uh, you cite in support of a conclusion. So one of your premises is true, so that's fine, but it's irrelevant to the conclusion. Now, um, you might be a bit worried about this, but let me just give you an example of non-sequiturs that, that will be obviously non-sequiturs. Bill lives in a large building, therefore his apartment is large. Okay? Is there any situation in which this premise is true and this conclusion false? Hundreds of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he may live in a large, apartment, uh, large building, but his apartment may be no bigger than a broom cupboard. It? So you can see that that isn't a valid argument. And the reason it isn't is because the, the premise, uh, it doesn't matter how true the premise is, it's completely irrelevant to the conclusion, isn't it? You cannot derive the truth of the conclusion from the truth of that premise. Now, I can imagine that you're thinking, well, what about those paradoxes of entailment then? You know, surely that was um, a case, a paradigmatic case of irrelevance. If you remember, I had um, grass is green, therefore 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay? Now, surely that premise is irrelevant to the conclusion. But let me ask again, is there any possible situation in which that premise is true and that conclusion is false? Is there any possible situation, let me ask again, in which that premise is true and that conclusion false? Why not? You're right, there isn't. But why isn't there? We saw here that this premise can be true and that conclusion false, can't we? That's, that's not a problem. That is a non sequitur commits the fallacy of irrelevance. But what, what, why do, doesn't this one do that? That's all right, go on. Well, neither's that one. I mean, that, that's what's wrong with this one, is that the premise and the conclusion are completely irrelevant to each other, aren't they? So, so why isn't that a problem with this one? The conclusion is necessarily true, that's right. So, so the reason this is a paradox is that the premise 
is completely irrelevant to the conclusion, but it satisfies the definition of validity because there can't be any possible situation in which the premise is true and the conclusion false if there isn't any possible situation in which the conclusion's false. How can P and Q be true if Q isn't true? If, if Q is necessarily false, then how can P and Q be true? The truth of P just becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? The truth of P is, is just unnecessary to the whole claim. Are you with me? I'm, I'm seeing lights sort of going on here, but it's difficult, isn't it? Okay, so this commits the, uh, this is a non sequitur, whereas that's not. That's a case of a, a, of a paradox of entailment. And the difference between them is that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a necessary truth. It cannot be false. So how could the premise be true and the conclusion false? But if it can't be the case that the premise is true and the conclusion false, then it satisfies the definition of validity, whereas this doesn't. Okay, here's another non sequitur. Every year, many people are supported through li life by their religious beliefs. Therefore, their religious beliefs must be true. Okay, does that premise give any support at all to that conclusion? No. I mean, perhaps your religious beliefs really do help you live a good life, live a, a life that's satisfying to, to you. That doesn't necessarily mean they're true. Because false beliefs, if you believe false beliefs are true, they're going to give you everything that, that they would give you if they were true, if you see what I mean. Okay, so those are two non-sequiturs, and we can see why a non-sequitur is, is an invalid argument, that there's uh, easily a possible situation in which that's true and that's false, therefore it's not valid. Again, the truth of that bears no relation to the truth of that, so again, the two arguments are not valid. Okay, how do arguments like this work? I mean, one of the things we've got to argue, we're forever falling for fallacies. I mean, we, we argue uh, incorrectly. We either make fallacies, we argue fallaciously ourselves, or we fall for the fallacies that other people offer us. Um, have I talked to you about the principle of charity? The principle of charity tells you that your interlocutor's silliness is less likely than your bad interpretation. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, what's your name? Uh, I was thinking of the lady in front with the nice necklace. You've probably got a nice necklace too. <laughs> okay, Margaret. Um, Margaret and I are arguing. Margaret says something that I think is blindingly obviously stupid. Okay, now I've got two possibilities. I can think... Margaret's just said something blindingly obviously stupid. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. You know, she's obviously not worth talking to. Um, because she said not P, whereas surely P is obvious. Now, what the principle of charity tells me to do in that case is to say, well, that's interesting. Margaret says not P. I think not P is definitely false. Therefore, I must have misunderstood Margaret. Because her silliness is far less likely than my misunderstanding her argument. Are you with me? Okay. So instead of saying to Margaret, <laughs> you must be joking, how stupid can you get, or anything like that, or just saying to myself, oh, right, okay, <laughs> thanks, Margaret, nice to see you, etc., and walking off, um, I say to Margaret, that's interesting, you think not P, I think P, why do you think not P? 
uh, and you give me your reasons and I give you re my reasons for thinking of P and we, we have a proper argument and we discover actually that P and not P are not in this case inconsistent, um, that we've both got a slight misunderstanding. Let me give you an example. I don't know why I use this example, but I always do, so I'm going to do it again. Two rats in a cage. Um, they've both come from different cages, and in one of those cages, one of the rats was given an electric shock every time a, um, a, so a sound was made. Uh, the same sound was resulted in the other rat being given a food pellet. Okay, so the, the experiments are finished. They've now been put in the same cage, and this sound happens Sound sounds. Now, what's going to happen? One rat's going to rush shaking into the corner of the cage, waiting for an electric shock, and the other rat is going to be rushing up to the food bowl looking for a food pellet, isn't it? Okay. And then they look at each other and think, you're mad. You know, why have you done that? Um, what they, if they were talking to... This is why I don't know, I understand why I use this example. If they were able to talk to each other, they would then discover that actually they both overgeneralised, didn't they? Because one's experience was that whenever that, this, and the other's experience was whenever that, that, um, they assumed that's all the experience there was in the world. And in fact, they've now got two counterexamples to that. One is they're in a cage where the sound goes off and nothing happens. And the other is that there are places in the world where something completely different happens. And it's only if they talk about it that they'll discover that. So arguing is, is the lifeblood of, of cooperating in the search for truth. If you want to know what the truth is, you cooperate with other rational animals, in other words, other people like us um, and if you find that there's a, a contradiction don't assume that the other person is wrong because the, r the only rational thing to assume is that one of you is wrong and even that might be false uh, but it certainly might be you and it's the principle of charity that you observe when you argue in order not to do the irrational thing and to assume that the other person is wrong rather than uh, assume that you've misunderstood them. So that's what the principle of charity is. And what happens in this case, in, in the case of non-sequiturs, is that the principle of charity can take you, get you into the wrong place. Because you might not notice the irrelevance. I mean, that, that can happen. If, uh, for example, large apartment, large building, you might think the two larges there is enough to make it relevant and you'll let the argument go through. You wouldn't be right to do that, but it maybe is understandable. But um, sometimes when people are arguing, you might think, well, hang on, I'm sure that was irrelevant, but it can't have been because you know, Margaret's too rational for to allow an irrelevance to go through and non-sequitur like that. Or you might just want to not, be, not admit that you can't see the connection. So the thing to do is to, A, be aware that there should be, in, in just in any conversation, the implication is that there's a connection between premises and conclusion, like the sea is salt, Melbourne's in Australia. When I gave you the context, you could see the connection. Um, so if you can't see the connection, ask for it. So um, don't be too generous uh, because it's possible that this person is putting forward a non sequitur and certainly don't be too proud to ask for the relevance if you can't see it. 
Okay, here's um, an ad. So this is the second um, fallacy of relevance. Um, so the second one is attacking the person. Oh, it's the second one we're looking at. There are many more than this. Uh, you might attack the person making the argument rather than the argument that's made. And this is called a, an ad hominem fallacy. And you may have heard, um, uh, was it Miliband? Um, on the Today programme the other day, talking, uh, now who was he talking to? Talking to William Hague, and he accused William Hague of an ad hominem fallacy. He said, you're arguing against the man, not against the argument, or you're, you're um, stopping the, the man, not the ball, or something, he said. Uh, it was a very good example. Okay, here's an ad hominem um, fallacy. Nick Griffin is leader of the BNP, therefore his claim that some people worry about immigration is rubbish. Now, I actually heard that fallacy loud and clear the other night on, on Question Time. I'm sure you did too. Um, does the truth of the fact that uh, Nick Griffin is leader of the BNP um, bear at all on the claim, the truth of the claim, that some people worry about immigration. I mean, could it be the case that Nick Griffin is leader of the BNP and some people worry about immigration? Yes. Of course it could, couldn't it? Yes. Okay, here's another one. Von Daniken, I don't, you may not even remember him. He was the chap who wrote books about uh, people coming from space and building the pyramids and so on. Um, his books about ancient astronauts are worthless because he's a convicted forger and, and embezzler. Now, he is actually a convicted for, forger and embezzler. Does that mean that his books are worthless? Okay. So could this premise be true and this conclusion false? Yes. Could this premise be true and the conclusion false? So the arguments are useless, aren't they? They're, they're both invalid. Um, there are possible situations in which the premise is true, conclusion is false, they're not good arguments. Um, now, it's very important when thinking about ad hominem fallacies to distinguish between ad hominem attacks and ad hominem fallacies. And the difference between the two is this. Um, you can attack somebody's right to say something, so you can cast doubt um, on, on why they're saying what they're saying uh, by saying something about who they are. Um, what you can't do is cast doubt on the truth of what they're saying. So here's a diff the difference between the two. Here's an ad hominem attack. Nick Griffin is a self-professed racist, so you should take care when listening to his claims about immigration. Now, that just seems sensible, doesn't it? Uh, that's an ad hominem attack. That's not a fallacy at all. All you're doing is warning somebody that this person has a vested interest in making you believe something. Um, so you should take his um, claims with a, an extra pinch of salt. But it doesn't say anything about the truth of the claim. So here, well, it, the only thing it says about the truth of the claim is, is that um, you should be aware of the truth of the claim because this person wants you to believe that. And of course, that's not a good enough reason for believing it. Nick Griffin is leader of the BNP, therefore his claim that some people worry about immigration is rubbish. That is a fallacy. If you attack a person instead of what he says, and your attack on the person is actually irrelevant to the truth of what he says. In other words, your attack might be a correct attack. You're, you're not saying something false about this person. 
but the truth of what you're saying bears no, um, has no bearing at all on the truth of what he is saying, that's a fallacy. Um, what, you, what you could be saying is warning somebody. So, so um, I've forgotten your name again. Ashley. Ashley comes to me and tells me that, um, oh, so-and-so came and told her that the coffee's ready in the common room. Uh, and I say, yes, but I know why he told you that. That's because he likes everyone else to go to the common room first and then discover it's actually being served upstairs today. And he gets all the chocolate biscuits. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that... When I'm doing that, I'm giving her a reason for why he said something. Uh, it doesn't actually bear on the truth of what's there, but it's a good reason not to, to be sceptical about whether the coffee's being in the common room. You'd want to check with someone else that the coffee was in the common room before you went there, perhaps. Um, or you wouldn't come down from Ewart House in order to get coffee from the common room on the basis of what Ashley said or what, what this person said. Okay, so that's the difference between ad hominem. So I don't know if that's answered your question. Yeah, I mean, an ad hominem is an attack on the person making an argument, not on the argument he's making. And therefore, the, the attack, even if the attack is justified, um, it doesn't question the argument itself. So those were fallacies of relevance. Now, moving on to fallacies of vacuity. Um, Okay, the first one is a circular argument that we'll be looking at. And what you, when you argue in a circle, you cite in support of a conclusion that very conclusion. Um, so your premise or your conclusion is amongst your premises here. Uh, second fallacy we're looking at here is the fallacy of question begging. And thirdly, a self-sealing argument. So let's start with circular arguments, then come back and look at these again. A circular argument, um, the conclusion is one of the premises. And the difference between that and a question-begging argument is that here the conclusion actually is one of the premises, exactly the same thing, and here the conclusion is assumed by one of the premises. So you haven't actually got the conclusion amongst the premises, but you've got amongst the premises a, a premise that assumes the conclusion. So here's an example of a circular argument. All whales are mammals, therefore all whales are mammals. Now, is that argument valid? Yes. Well done. You are absolutely right, it is valid. All circular arguments are valid. How could there be a possible situation in which that's true and that's false if they're the same thing? If that's true, that's got to be true, hasn't it? So there's no possible situation in which that's true and that's false. Therefore, that argument is valid. So circular arguments are always valid, and what that tells you is that there's got to be more to a good argument than, than validity. And, and what's more, true premises, because that is actually a true premise as well. So that's a sound argument, but it's not very good, is it? It, w it wouldn't convince anybody of anything. But do you remember last week I got myself into a bit of a tangle by trying to draw truth tables on here and convince you that once you've got a premise, once you've got a conclusion in amongst the premises, it doesn't matter what you add to the argument, it remains valid. This is uh, called the monotonic property of entailment. Um, if I add lots of other premises to that, um, the circularity will no longer be as obvious as it is now, will it? But actually, 
you are validity detected. That's what you are in virtue of being rational animals. So somebody stands up in Parliament and gives a, a circular argument that's long and con convoluted and so on. It's a valid argument and you hear that. You, you can tell that it's a valid argument, that there's no possible situation where the premises are true and the conclusion false. But what you don't see is that it's only valid because it's circular. Do you see how it happens? So nobody would put forward an argument like that, but if they embed that premise in with the, sorry, that conclusion in with the premises, they've set up a situation in which there's no possible situation where all the premises are true and the conclusion false. How could there be? Because it doesn't matter what other premises are there, if all the premises are true, the conclusion must be true as well, because the conclusion is one of the premises. So circular arguments are always valid. Um, and some circular arguments like this one are sound, but that doesn't make them good. There must be more to a valid argument, sorry, to a good argument than just soundness. In the final analysis, the point of an argument is to persuade someone of something. So it's to persuade you. Um, if you don't believe P, and I think you should believe P, I think P is true and therefore you should believe it, I put together an argument in the hope of convincing you that P. Okay? So what I want from an argument more than anything else is that it should be persuasive. Okay? But I don't want it to be persuasive because of a fallacy. Um, I actually want it to be a good argument as well. Um, and therefore I want it to be sound and valid. Um, but if it's sound and valid and not persuasive, it's pretty useless for any practical purpose. Um, so uh, you actually you can't have a productive argument with somebody unless you agree with them. Can anyone tell me why that might be the case? Productive disagreement always depends on, on agreement, which is why if you've really got two sides who absolutely disagree on everything, you may as well forget it. Why, why should productive disagreement depend on agreement? I can only argue with you if you're prepared to accept my premises. If you reject my premises, then, then I can't draw anything from those premises that's going to convince you of anything, can I? So uh, I've got to con convince you of at least one of my premises before we can even get started. Um, of course, what I might do is say, will you agree to take this for the sake of argument? Um, and then take you through the arguments. But of course, if you still don't accept the premise, really, you, you know, you're never actually going to accept the conclusion of my argument, are you? So in order to disagree productively, you've got to agree on something. You've got to agree on the premises. Okay, so that's a, a circular argument, and it's a valid one, but it's no good. Um, and it's no good because there's no possible situation in which the premise is true and the, and the conclusion false, but that's because the conclusion is amongst the premises. Um, okay, let's look at begging the question. Uh, here's an argument. It's always wrong to murder human beings. Capital punishment involves murdering human beings, therefore capital punishment is wrong. What's question begging about this argument? Exactly. This, uh, to, to talk about capital punishment as if it were murder, just to assume that capital punishment is murder, is to assume your conclusion, isn't it? I mean, most people would say that actually capital punishment isn't murder because murder is illegal killing. 
whereas capital punishment is legal killing, isn't it? Um, judicial killing. So by um, talking as if capital punishment and murdering human beings are interchangeable here, you're actually begging the question, aren't you? You're begging the question, well, hang on a second, you know, why should I believe capital punishment is wrong on the basis of these two premises? Um, I don't accept that one at all because it, you're just assuming your conclusion here. Are you with me? So, so when you say that an argument is, is a fallacy, you're not necessarily saying it's invalid, but you are saying there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong that means it, it's not persuasive. It shouldn't persuade you. Um, often that'll be the case because it's invalid, but not always. And certainly with cases of circularity and question begging, that isn't the case. Okay, any other question before we move on? No? Okay, let's... Uh, okay, where are the question begging premises in each of the following arguments? Let's do an... Um, so, intoxication, intoxicating beverages should be banned because they make people drunk. Let's set out the argument logic book style before we do that. We might need to suppress premise. So what's the argument here? Think about it for yourself and then put your hand up when, you, when you've put out the argument logic book style. Bever yes, being drunk is bad or something like that. Or beverages that make people drunk should be bad. That's probably the right one. Beverages that make people drunk should be bad. Uh, should be banned. Intoxicated beverages make people drunk, therefore intoxicating beverages should be banned. What's the question begging bit? Which premise would you reject? You couldn't have a beverage that's intoxicating without having a beverage that would make you drunk because an intoxicating beverage is exactly a beverage that makes you drunk, isn't it? The fact is, you're not going to be able to um, reject that argument because it's, it's assuming its conclusion in its premises. So, uh, beverages that make people drunk should be banned. Uh, intoxicating beverages uh, make people drunk, therefore intoxicating beverages should be banned. Um, it's a valid argument, but it's not ever going to persuade you. Well, let's go back to this one. Let's go back to, to can, you, can you see that, um, now you might be for capital punishment or against it, but anyone who made this argument is clearly against capital punishment, aren't they? Okay, so um, they would be making the argument in order to try and persuade someone who's for capital punishment or, or neutral either way to agree with them that capital punishment is wrong, right? Okay. Um, and the problem with the argument they offer is that it's not going to convince anyone who isn't already convinced of the argument, is it? Because I might say I'm against capital punishment. Uh, sorry, I'm, no, I'm for capital punishment. Um, I might accept that premise. There's, a, there's our starting point of agreement. But as soon as we get to that one, I'm going to say, Oi, what? Hang, hang on, no, why, why should I accept that? You're assuming that capital punishment is wrong in making that premise. You know, if you change that premise to capital punishment involves killing human beings, that's fine. But then your argument isn't valid. The only way you can make your argument valid is by putting murdering in, and then it's valid because it begs the question. Okay? And therefore it's not persuasive. <laughs> so in exactly the same way... Um, 
if somebody was making this argument, say I didn't believe whales were mammals, okay, I thought whales were fish. Whales are obviously fish, aren't they? I mean, we've discussed this before. <laughs> um, anyway, they tell me whales are mammals. Okay, I, so I don't believe whales are mammals. Um, and you're trying to convince me. If you offer me this argument and say, well, here's a good argument for whales being mammals, I'm going to say, no. <laughs> no, that's not a good argument at all. Why should I agree with you on that premise? That, th in that premise, you're just assuming your answer. Your, sorry, your conclusion. So you've got a valid <laughs> argument, but it's hopelessly unpersuasive. Therefore, it's not a good argument. And, and this one is only slightly different in that instead of the, the premise actually being the same as the conclusion, the premise assumes the conclusion. So if I, actually, if I'm, if you're arguing, using this argument against me, it's not going to persuade me of anything, is it? And that's what's wrong with it, not that it's not valid. So we're looking at fallacies of vacuity, okay? We've looked at fallacies of relevance, we're now looking at fallacies of vacuity. And we've looked firstly at circular arguments, where the, the, the conclusion is one of the premises. Why, tell me again why that would convince anyone if you've made an argument where the conclusion is amongst the premises, because it's valid, and because the, the fact that the conclusion is amongst the premises may be hidden among all sorts of other premises, so you just don't notice that the conclusion is there. Okay, then we looked at um, question-begging arguments and we tied ourselves in knots, or I, I tied myself in a knot. Um, but the idea here is that instead of the, premise, the conclusion being amongst the premises itself, there is amongst the premises a premise that, that assumes the conclusion. That's the difference between those two. And finally, we're going to look at uh, arguments that are self-sealing. Okay, a self-sealing argument. Two weeks from today at 2.45, you're going to be doing exactly what you are doing. Well, it will be a true statement, won't it? I mean, that couldn't be false, could it? Um, but it's not a persuasive argument. Why not? It's completely vacuous. It's, it says absolutely nothing, does it? It doesn't give you any prediction. It doesn't limit the possibilities at all. It just tells you you're going to be doing whatever you're going to be doing, which has to be true. Not persuasive. Um, here's one that, that actually lots of people do think is persuasive. We must respect all moral beliefs, therefore relativism is, moral relativism is true. Um, this is called vulgar relativism uh, by a chap called Bernard Williams, famous philosopher. Um, the reason that's a self-sealing argument is that is a moral absolute. We must respect all moral beliefs. You cannot derive moral relativism from a moral absolute. If that premise is true, then that conclusion is false. And if the conclusion is true, the premise is false. So it's, it's a bad argument because it goes around in a circle. It's Actually, that's self-defeating rather than self-sealing. Yes, that, that actually should be in a slightly different category. But here's another one that, that you may have... Um, variants of it will have caught you out at some point, I'm sure. Global economy is controlled by Jews and any appearance to the contrary is the result of Jewish cleverness. Um, I, women are stupid and, and any appearance to the contrary is just because they're quite good at covering it over sometimes. You know. um, so again, a self-sealing argument because you know that you can't be refuted because whatever happens, you've got some reason for why what you're saying is, is true. 
So um, some self-sealing arguments move back and forth from interesting but false claims. For example, you might say all human beings are selfish. Uh, and you won't say, well, hang on, that's not true. Lots of people uh, are altruistic. They're, they do things for other people. And then you say, oh, yes, but they're still doing it because they want to. I mean, Mother Teresa... Um, <laughs> I mean, she wouldn't have helped all those people unless she wanted to. And you say, well, no, she did it out of duty. And so you say, well, well, yes, but she wanted to do her duty, didn't she? I mean, she still wanted to do what she did. So she, the only thing she did was what she wanted to do. So she's as selfish as everyone else. And you, you know, how, uh, what's happening here? Well, what's happening is that someone's moving from an interesting but false claim to a true but vacuous claim. And, and what they'll do is they'll move backwards and forwards between the two until you've got yourself thoroughly tied in a knot. Um, and what you need to do is separate, separate out the two claims that are being made and show why one of them is uh, meaningless, even if true. So, three ways that an argument can be self-sealing. It can invent ad hoc ways to dismiss criticism. So, if my prediction didn't work, it's because there were negative vibes in the room. Okay. You know, it's all your fault. Um, it can attack its critics as unable to see the benefits of the position. So, you know, the only reason you don't see that the world's been taken over by Jews or women or, or blacks or whatever is because you've been taken in by them. Uh, or, or another one there is, um, you know, you're in denial, therefore you, you don't understand what I'm saying about your appalling desires and what have you. Um, it can also redefine key words. So um, it's selfish to always be doing just what you want to do. Well, it depends what, how you interpret just what you want to do there. If you interpret, so even Mother Teresa was doing just what she wanted to do, then you might need to have another look at what you mean by selfish. Okay, finally, we're going to look at fallacies of clarity. And I want to lose, use some time for questions. Sorry, you've got a question. Those last three, how do you argue against those arguments? Um, well, on, on, the, um, on this one... Uh, as soon as you have the feeling that you're being moved from between two different propositions, one of which is false uh, and interesting and the other is, is see if, ask for time out if you can, because that's the only way you're going to do it. And of course, this is what you won't get. Um, and try and identify what the two propositions are. So in this case, you want to say, okay, the meaning of selfish is usually um, isn't interested in what anyone else wants. Uh, in which case Mother Teresa wouldn't be selfish because she is interested in what other people want. Um, then you say, but then your other claim is that somebody's selfish only if they... Um, sorry, some, it's sufficient for being selfish that somebody acts on what they, they themselves want. And actually, that's not usually the definition of selfish. So identify the, the weasel word... And, and get out the two definitions and then show that somebody's flipping between one and the other is the way to do that. Um, okay, fallacies of the heap. If you have only one penny, you're not rich. If you're not rich and I give you a penny, then you still won't be rich. It doesn't matter how many pennies I give you, then you won't be rich. Okay, is that a good argument? No, why not? 
I mean, is that false? No? Okay, is that false? Is that, no, it's not false, is it? I mean, that's true. If you gave me a penny, sadly, you wouldn't make me rich. It's uh, if all you gave. Well, yeah. Okay, so that's true and that's true. Is that true? Okay, is this valid? Is there any possible situation where those two are both true and this is false? Yes. Okay, this is actually not a valid argument at all, is it? It's, it's trading on the fact that many words are vague. They admit of borderline cases. So any word you can think of, like tall, fat, clever, can you think of a few others? Rich. Rich is one of them. Yep. Long. Poor. Yep. Any, any word that admits of, of degrees, admits of borderline cases, um, you can construct a heap argument for the fallacy of the heap. And so that's the fact that words do admit of borderline cases and the idea that a series of insignificant differences can't result in a significant difference. And of course, it's this one here that's, that's at fault because <coughs> a series of insignificant differences, if we take blue at this end of the stage and red at this end of the stage, they're two different colours, aren't they? But we can go from one to the other um, in a series of gradations where you would say in each case they're the same colour, the same colour, the same colour. But So A and B are the same, B and C are the same, but A and C are not the same. Okay, They're intransitive. Um, so when you're making an argument, you should try and avoid words that are uh, grading words, scaling words. And how, how would you um, stop these being vague? If you had, John has a nice income, what might you say instead of that? Say, say it again, some of you. Good. John is, is in the top 10th percentile of income earners or something like that. Yep. Okay. Cocaine is a dangerous drug. Addictive. Cocaine is addictive or cocaine. cocaine. It's the same. Uh, you could say the same sort of thing. Yep. Or whatever. Exactly. That's what you're trying to do is eliminate the vagueness by being more exact in some way or another. So Mary is a clever woman. You can just say Mary has got uh, three degrees and a PhD or something like that. Um, uh, Jane is a terrific tennis player. Jane is... Um, what? Yes, okay. Good. Dead easy. Um, slippery slope fallacy. This is another fallacy of ambiguity. Um, humans are rational, sorry, of in clarity. Human are rational because they act for reasons. Radiators turn themselves on when it's cold. Therefore, radiators are rational. <laughs> now, don't laugh because actually lots of people try and convince me of this uh, because I, I, I don't believe animals are rational. Um, and people always tell me that I should believe animals are rational because they act for reasons. Uh, and some people want to say that even radiators are rational because when it's cold, they turn themselves on, except in Rodley House. But I mean, it's, it's usually the case. And therefore, there's, it has a belief that it's cold and a desire that it should not be cold. And therefore, it acts. I mean, why isn't that rational? But again, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? Because here are radiators down at one end of, of acting for reasons, and here are human beings up at the other end of acting for reasons, and we're saying that there's no...
difference between the two. So any slippery slope argument um, can fall foul of that. Just quickly, slippery slope depends on the idea that we shouldn't distinguish between things that are not significantly different. Um, and the belief that if A isn't significantly different from B, and B is not significantly different from C, then A isn't significantly different from C. And again, that's true only if you've got something that's transitive, and there are many, many things that are not transitive. Of course, sometimes, um, you are, I mean, one way of avoiding a slippery slope is actually to define something. We have to use slippery slopes sometimes, don't we? Um, when we think about... Um, you know, well, why should we have the uh, age of being allowed to marry at 16 without your parents' permission or whatever it is, or the age of being able to drink um, whatever it is? Actually, I have no idea what it is. 18, is it? Right. Um, what happens between the, the last day that you're 17 and the first day that you're 18 that makes it possible for you to drink on one day and not drink on the other legally? I mean, this is just daft, isn't it? Well, it is daft, of course. But, but here you, you have to make a cut-off point at some point. Um, and what the slippery slope is, it, it can say, well, OK, there isn't um, an obvious difference, but we have to make one somewhere, or that we can just make one by regulation or whatever. But slippery slopes trade on this particular problem. Um, here's another one. Uh, Mary had a little lamb. He followed her to school. Mary had a little lamb. Then she had a little broccoli. Um, we can see that that's a, an equivocation. It's not actually clear what it's an equivocation on, is it? Is it lamb or is it had? Or little, well, and little, actually, isn't it? Because had means possessed, whereas ha in the first one, in the second one, it means ate, doesn't it? Um, little lamb in the first one is a bit different from little lamb in the second one, and so on. Um, here's an equivocation, yep. Okay, a feather is light. What is light cannot be dark, therefore a feather can't be dark. What's the equivocation there? The word light. In the first case, it means light as a feather, weight-wise. And the second case, we're talking about light as opposed to dark. So that's the fallacy of equivocation. Um, there are three types of ambiguity. Um, lexical. So what's wrong with that one, I thought it was rum, is that rum is itself ambiguous. That's a word that can mean different things. Uh, in the second one, Bert was a fat stock breeder. What's the ambiguity there? Give me the two understandings of that term. Right, either Bert was fat or, or the stock was fat. That's right. So it's the scope of fat... Um, just so Bert was fat and Bert was a stock breeder, or is it the fat goes with stock breeder? So Bert was a fat stock breeder. Okay, those are the two. And then finally, cross reference. My wife's cousin is engaged to for her former husband. What's the ambiguity there? So either my wife's cousin is engaged to my wife's former husband, or my wife's cousin is engaged to the cousin she the wife's cousin had before, now that she's marrying for the second time to the same person. Okay, explain the ambiguities in this sentence, these sentences. No one likes Oxford and Cambridge students. Good, okay, nobody likes students who've been to Oxford and Cambridge, or nobody likes Oxford students and nobody likes Cambridge students. No one likes Oxford the city. 
Oh, oh and, uh, yes, uh, no one likes Oxford and no one likes Cambridge students. Yes, that would be another one. Okay, every nice girl loves a sailor. Actually, if you were able to formalise things, you would find it very easy to do this, because this could mean there is a sailor such that every nice girl loves him, or every nice girl is such that there is a sailor whom she loves. You with me? So every girl is such, sorry, there is a sailor such that every girl loves him, or every nice girl loves some sailor. Okay, so in the second case, there are lots of different sailors. In the first case, there's just one sailor who's loved by all the girls. Um, so that's a structural ambiguity. Our shoes are guaranteed to give you a fit. Yeah. <laughs> I can see you've got that one. <laughs> okay, irritating children should be banned. That's right. It, uh, what are we banning? Children who are irritating or, or the irritating of children? Okay, what about the last one? Can anyone tell me what the ambiguity is here? This is more difficult. You'll kick yourselves, but, but you'll also think that I've cheated you. Why do swallows fly south for winter? 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 Is that ambiguous? Okay. And, and all it was is the intonation there. Um, I managed to, to give it lots of different meanings. So um, you shouldn't think that actually the, the, the ambiguity might just be in, this, in the lexicon, in the uh, structure, and in the cross-references. Sometimes you can put it in just by the tone, uh, the emphasis you give on the words that you use. Right, okay, that's it for the lectures. Um, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you too.